Let's open our Bibles together at this time to the book of Acts, chapter 17 and verse 10. Acts 17.10 for our message from the Word of God this morning. Acts 17.10 is located on page 1173 if you're using the Church Bible. Today's date is January 29th, 2023. Today's text will start in Acts 17.10 and run through verse 21. And the title of this morning's message is A Tale of Three Cities. Charles Dickens wrote a tale of only two cities, but we're going to tell a tale of three cities this morning. And we begin with a brief story about New York City. They say that a man is mugged in New York City every 30 seconds. They also say that He's getting pretty tired of it. And I would be too. Well, speaking of cities, here in Acts 17, the Apostle Paul has just survived an attempt on his life in the city of Thessalonica. And he's about to leave for a second city, city of Berea. And after that, we're going to see him travel to a third city, the city of Athens, the capital of Greece. And the story begins in Acts 17.10, where we read these words. And the brethren immediately sent away Paul and Silas by night unto Berea, who, Paul and Silas, coming thither, went into the synagogue of the Jews. Now, as you can see, after those unsaved Jews in Thessalonica that McKenna read to us about in the first nine verses of Acts 17. After those unsaved Jews tried to kill Paul, his new brethren in Thessalonica sent him and Silas to Berea, which they tell me was about 40 miles to the west and still is. (laughs) And there, there in Berea, Paul continued to do what God told him to do. He went to the Jews in the synagogue first, even though that nearly got him killed back in Thessalonica. But if the city of Berea sounds familiar... That's because Berean Bible Society, where I work, was named after the believers in Berea. And we find out why Pastor Stam, our founder, chose this name way back in 1940 in the very next verse of our text in Acts 17 and verse 11 where it says of the Jews in Berea, these Berean Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica in that they received the word with all readiness of mind and searched the scriptures daily to see whether those things were so. Now, that's the kind of attitude we should always have when we hear a preacher preach a message from the Scriptures. 
First, they receive the word with all readiness of mind. We would say they kept an open mind, a mind that was ready to receive whatever Paul taught if they found out that it was true. And the way they determined whether it was true or not, as it says there, was by searching the scriptures. And they searched them daily, folks. You know, if more Christians did that, there'd be a whole lot fewer mixed up Christians. And a whole lot fewer goofy preachers getting rich off of them, right? Did you know that even the prophets who wrote the scriptures search the scriptures? <laughs> In your first reference, after Peter talked to his readers about salvation. He said in 1 Peter 1, 10 and 11, of which salvation the prophets have inquired and searched diligently, searching what the Spirit of Christ which was in them did signify when it testified beforehand the sufferings of Christ and the glory that should follow. In other words, the spirit of Christ that was in those prophets when they wrote the scriptures, <laughs> the spirit of Christ that was in them causing them to write the scriptures testified that Christ would have to suffer and die. And the prophets wrote out what they what the Spirit testified. But then they put down their pens and sat back and wondered about the significance of what they just wrote. They wondered what the Spirit was trying to signify when he guided them to write those words. In other words, they wondered what those words meant. And that was because they couldn't understand how any glory could come from the death of their Christ. But now that we've got a completed Bible, we know all about the glory of how Christ died for our sins. But the point is, if even the prophets who wrote the scriptures search the scriptures, do you think maybe you should too? Do you know who else searched the scriptures? Angels, as Peter went on to say in the very next verse in 1 Peter 1.12, which things the angels desire to look into. Even the angels search the scriptures, folks. Angels have Bible studies. They even attend our Bible studies, as Paul said in Ephesians 3.10. You know this verse. Now under the principalities and powers in heavenly places might be known by us, by the church, the manifold wisdom of God. Well, hey, if angels and archangels and principalities and powers, if they search the scriptures daily, don't let your Bible get dusty during the week. Now, there's a reason that Luke, the guy who wrote the book of Acts, there's a reason that Luke calls the Bereans noble for searching the scriptures. That word noble, as I'm sure I don't have to tell you, refers to kings and other kinds of noblemen, right? In your next reference, when Paul was on trial before the Roman governor, Felix, in Acts 24.3, Paul calls him most noble Felix. And I don't know if you know this or not, but Luke wrote, the book of Acts, to another nobleman. Look how he introduces Acts in Acts 1.1. 1, 1. 
He starts it out by saying, the, the former treatise have I made, O Theophilus. Now, the former treatise that he's talking about was the, was the former book he wrote to Theophilus, the book of Luke. And we know that Theophilus was a nobleman because in Luke 1.3, Luke addresses him as most excellent Theophilus. And that title, most excellent, that's just another title of nobility. As you see at the next reference, look at, look at Acts 23.26. The most excellent governor, Felix. Well, hey, just a minute ago, Felix was called noble. Now he's called most excellent. But to get to the point, when Luke called the Bereans noble, I think that was his way of telling Theophilus, you know, you might be a nobleman in the eyes of men, but if you want to be a nobleman in the eyes of God, you got to do what they did in Berea. You got to search the scriptures. And you do too. That is, if you want to be what Pastor Stam used to call the Bereans. He used to call the Bereans the spiritual aristocracy of their day. And they really were, folks. Do you know what the greatest nobleman this world has ever seen wrote in Proverbs 25, 1 and 2? These are also the Proverbs of Solomon, greatest king the world's ever seen so far. It is the glory of God to conceal a thing, but the honor of kings is to search out a matter. Well, isn't that interesting? When you search for things that God Almighty has concealed, folks, that makes you a spiritual king. And it just so happens that the Apostle Paul preached something that God concealed from Satan himself. For 4,000 years, God concealed the mystery that he later revealed to Paul. Paul said in 1 Corinthians 2 and verse 7, we speak the wisdom of God in a mystery, even the concealed wisdom, the hidden wisdom. Now, the mystery that God concealed from the devil himself was this message that God gave to the Apostle Paul. And folks, it was the glory of God that he was able to conceal it from the devil himself. Of course, Paul's mystery was not hid or concealed in the scriptures, was it? The next reference in Ephesians 3.9 says it was hidden in the mind and heart of God. Paul talks about the mystery there and he says that it was from the beginning of the world hid, not in scriptures, but hid in God himself. You could search the Old Testament scriptures all you wanted for Paul's mystery and you wouldn't find it. But, now that Paul has written 13 epistles about the mystery, it's our honor to search it out in those epistles. It's the honor of kings, folks. We're spiritual nobility. Look what Solomon said in the next verse. Proverbs 25, verses 2 and 3. The honor of kings is to search out a matter, the heaven for height, and the earth for depth. Well, I gotta ask you, doesn't that remind you of what Paul said about the mystery in Ephesians 3? 1 to 18, Jesus Christ made known to me the mystery, and for this cause I bow my knees to the Father that ye may be able to comprehend what is the breadth and length and depth and height of the mystery. 
In other words, Paul prayed that you would search his epistles and find the breadth and length and depth and height of it. And that's what we try to teach here at our church. But listen, this is important. (laughs) We know that's not what Solomon was talking about. He wasn't talking about the mystery in Proverbs 25 because there's not even a hint of the mystery anywhere in the Old Testament. But look at how Proverbs 25.3 ends in your next reference. The heaven for height, the earth for depth, and the heart of kings is unsearchable. In the Old Testament, the mystery was concealed in the heart of the king of kings. And his heart was unsearchable. So Solomon couldn't have been talking about the mystery that was hidden God there. But I look at that and say, you could tell God was thinking about the mystery when he inspired Solomon to write those words. At least I can see that. But now, here's the question I get often at Berean Bible Society, and that is this. If the mystery can't be found in the Old Testament scriptures, well then here in Acts 17, how did the Bereans search the Old Testament scriptures to see if what Paul said was so? (laughs) And the first answer to that question is that when Paul preached the mystery, I'm sure he preached it just like you do. We say to people, there's nothing in the Old Testament about 2,000 years of grace for the Gentiles, and if you don't believe that, search the Scriptures and see. And when they search the Old Testament Scriptures, they see that it is so. It's not back there. And when the Bereans did it, they found it was so also. The mysteries, not in the Old Testament. Do you know what else the Bereans found when they searched the scriptures? They found the same thing the Apostle James found when he first heard about the mystery from Paul. Look look what James said about the mystery in Acts 15 and verse 15. To this agree the words of the apostles, uh, of the prophets, I'm sorry. Everything Paul says in the mystery agreed with the Old Testament scriptures. And if it didn't, James would have known it wasn't so because God never contradicts himself. But the idea of salvation going to the Gentiles did agree with the Old Testament scriptures because that's what God said he would do all along. Send salvation to the Gentiles. So James heard that and he knew the mystery was so. And when the Bereans searched the Old Testament scriptures, they too found that Paul's message agreed with the Old Testament. So they too knew that Paul's message was so. Now, let me prove to you that Only good things can come from being a Berean by reading the next verse. In verse 12 in our text, back in your Bible now. Therefore, because they searched the scriptures daily, many of them believed. Also of honorable women which were hanging around the synagogue, which were Greeks, and of men not a few. When the Berean Jews searched the scriptures, folks, it led to the salvation of their souls. They found that what Paul was saying was so, so they believed him when he talked about Christ dying for their sins. And because these Berean Jews 
were more uh, noble than the ones in Thessalonica and in search the scriptures, more of the Berean Jews believed than the Thessalonian Jews believed. Look back at Acts 17.4, the fourth verse of this chapter where it says, speaking of the Jews in the synagogue in Thessalonica, some of them believed. Look back at verse 12. Now, therefore, in Berea, because they searched the scriptures, many of them believed. See the contrast? Now, all of this reminds me of a troublemaking grace pastor (laughs) who wrote me years ago at Brain Bible Society and said that You know, grace ministries like yours shouldn't name yourselves after the Bereans because the Bereans were unsaved Jews when they searched the scriptures. But I told Terry, uh, I told him that if even unbelievers had the sense to search the scriptures, that maybe he should too. And I didn't hear from him back after that. All right, verse 13 in your Bible says, uh, But when the Jews of Thessalonica, the ones he left, the ones that ran him out of town, the ones who tried to kill him in Thessalonica, when the Jews of Thessalonica had knowledge that the Word of God was preached of Paul at Berea, they came thither also and stirred up the people. They're dogging his steps. They're following him around. We call that persecution, right? And rather than wait for those stirred up people to try to kill Paul, the brethren, it says there, did what they did. The brethren did in Thessalonica. They they sent him away. (laughs) Look at verse 14. And then immediately after the people started getting stirred up, the brethren sent away Paul to go as it were, to the sea. But Silas and Timotheus abode there still in Berea. Now, in verse 17, do you see those words, as it were? Those words mean that they made it look like Paul was going to the sea to escape when he was actually going away by land. You know, when you're watching the playoffs this afternoon, watch for this. A good quarterback turns his head to the receivers on the left while he's looking to the receivers on the right. And he does that because he knows when the defense sees him looking to the left, they move to the left to guard the receivers. And that means when he then throws to the right, it's a piece of cake. And and these brethren here are doing the same thing. They made it look like Paul was going one way when he was actually going the other way. Satan doesn't have all the sneaky people in the world. (laughs) God's adult sons can be just as shifty when we need to be. But now it says that Silas and Timothy abode still in Berea. You know, it was just as dangerous in Berea for them as it was for Paul, but they stayed because they knew somebody had to get those new believers in in Berea grounded. But the brethren sent Paul away to protect him because he was... The future of the franchise, as football teams like to say about their quarterback. <laughs> where would where would the future be without him? Where would we be without Paul? And all the other preaching he had to do yet and writing. So where did they send Paul? Verse 15 tells us. And they that conducted Paul brought him to Athens and receiving a commandment unto Silas and Timotheus to come to him with all speed, they departed. 
Now the brethren there, it says, sent him to Athens, and I looked it up. Athens is 300 miles away from Berea, folks. But Paul wanted to go to Berea because it was such an influential city in the ancient world. And when it says there in verse 15 that uh, some men conducted Paul to Athens, conductors in the Bible, they weren't just guides like when a conductor conducts the orchestra. He's guiding the orchestra. You look up that word conduct and conductors and such and and you'll see a conductor in the Bible wasn't a guide, he was a guard. As you see in your next three references actually when talking about King David it says in 2 Samuel 19.15 that Barzillai went over Jordan, I'm sorry, 2 Samuel 19.15 is Judah came to Gilgal to conduct the king over Jordan, King David. Then in 2 Samuel 19.31, Barzillai, it made me name, say that name twice, Barzillai went over Jordan with the king to conduct him over the Jordan. Then in verse 40, all the people of Judah conducted the king and half the people of Israel as well, the ten tribes. And what that means is they were uh, serving as his guards. Paul was going back. Uh, Paul, David was going back to Jerusalem, folks. And I can assure you, David knew the way back to Jerusalem. He didn't need a guide to guide him back to Jerusalem. They were serving as his guards, not his guide. They were serving as what we would call his honor guard, right? And when you got an honor, you got an honor guard that big, nobody's going to get to you, right? And the Apostle Paul, he was no king, but he too was spiritual nobility because he too searched the scriptures. So those men here in verse 15, they have the honor of conducting Paul, of guarding him. The honor of guarding the Apostle Paul. And Timothy was nobility too. He searched the scriptures. So look what Paul told the Corinthians about Timothy in 1 Corinthians 16, 10 and 11. If Timotheus come, see that he may be with you without fear. For he worketh the work of the Lord as I also do. Let no man therefore despise him. They despised him because he was young. But conduct him forth in peace that he may come unto me. Now if you know the story, you know the Corinthians had been bullying Timothy so Paul told them to knock it off. And then he told them, he served the Lord like I do so you treat him like I get treated. And you conduct him. You give him an honor guard to come and see me. And that's what conductors did in the Bible. But once Paul got to Athens, he immediately began to miss the fellowship of Silas and Timothy. So verse 15 there says he commanded them to come and join him in Athens. Now, if you know your New Testament well, you know that Paul didn't usually order his his helpers around. But in this case, he did. Because he knew the importance of Christian fellowship. Unlike a lot of Christians today who say they don't have to go to church because they can watch a preacher on TV. Well, good sound TV preachers They're great for those who don't have a a sound local church. But they can't give you the fellowship that even the great Apostle Paul knew he had to have to keep on going. And if the great Apostle Paul needed fellowship to keep on going, you probably do too. 
right? But now in Athens, I'm sure you learned in school that Athens is the home of the Parthenon. How many of you remember the Parthenon? Raise your hand, make me feel better. There you go. The Parthenon was the temple of the false goddess Athena, and the city of Athens is named after Athena. And they built Athena a magnificent temple that still sits on top of the Acropolis. Remember that word? The highest hill in Athens. So if you ask anybody who's visited Athens what they remember about Athens, they'll they'll always tell you how stirring it was to see the Parthenon. But that's not what got Paul stirred up. Look at verse 16 in your Bible again. Now while Paul waited for Timotheus and Silas at Athens, his spirit was stirred in him when he saw the city wholly given to idolatry. Now, I'm sure Paul saw the Parthenon too, because... They built that thing like four or five hundred years before he got there. But the thing that stirred his spirit was, was all the idolatry he saw. If, if you studied Greek mythology in school like they made me study, you know that the Greeks had oodles of gods. They had a, they had a god of war. They had a god of peace. They had a god of the sun. They had a god of the moon. They probably had a god of navel lint, toe jam, and halitosis, and things that you just think that they had. I'm telling you, Athens. Athens was filled with carved images, idols, dedicated to all those gods. You've heard me say you can't trust history, but. An ancient Greek historian named Petronius said it's easy, it was easier to find a god in Athens than it was to find a man. And you know what? I looked it up. History also says there were 30,000 idols in Athens and only 10,000 people. So if Jan and Dean were alive, they'd have written three idols for every man instead of what was the what was the song they said? Never mind. <laughs> so Petronius was right. It literally, literally was easier to find an idol in Athens than it was to find a man. So you know when Paul saw those idols. He was just itching to find some idolaters to witness to. And eventually he did. But that's not who he talked to first, according to verse 17 in your Bible. After he saw in verse 16 the city wholly given to idolatry, therefore, because he saw all those idols, he disputed in the synagogue with the Jews. Then with the devout persons and in the market uh, with them that met with him there. The Apostle Paul's spirit was stirred in him when he saw all that idolatry, folks. But he did not let it keep him from doing what God told him to do. And God told him to go to the Jews first in the synagogues. And I don't care what gets you all stirred up, folks, when you look around in your city or in your world. Don't let it keep you from doing what God sent you to do. And I say that because just this past week, in emails, I had a an animated discussion, let's call it, <clears throat> with a grace man in New Zealand who, and there's several of them there by the way, who was trying to convince me the earth is flat. And we emailed back and forth but finally I said to him, listen, even if the earth is flat, don't let talking about it all the time keep you from talking about what God sent you to talk about. The gospel of the grace of God, the mystery given to Paul. 
Folks, Satan's happy as a clam if all you ever talk about is sports or politics or what's in the news instead of the gospel and instead of Paul's mystery. But after Paul finished with the Jews, it says there in verse 17, he headed for the marketplace. And in the market in Athens, uh, they traded more than just uh, things like sheep and olive oil. <laughs> they also traded little silver shrines to their idols, to their gods, I should say. And the market was also where you were likely to run into some of the famous Greek philosophers. Back in school, we all learned about Socrates and Plato and all of the rest of those rascals who got famous by plagiarizing the Bible books of Job, Proverbs, and Ecclesiastes. Do you know what those books are called by Bible teachers? The wisdom literature in the scriptures. And all those wise philosophers, they spouted a lot of nonsense too, but they plagiarized a lot of things from the scriptures. And then they acted like they thought up all those great thoughts. Well, it didn't take Paul long after he got to the marketplace to bump into some of them philosophers, as you see in verse 18. Then, certain philosophers of the Epicureans, I practiced that all week, and of the Stoics encountered Paul. And some said, what will this babbler say? <laughs> Others said, he seems to be a center forth of strange gods because he preached unto them Jesus and the resurrection. Now, who are the Epicureans? The Epicureans, their philosophy of life was that man's chief goal in life was to get all the pleasure he could in food and sex and any other sensual pleasure they could indulge in. Uh, years ago, uh, Sue's husband, Ed, used to like to tell the story of how when he was a boy, and I was his Sunday school teacher, I drove him to Woodfield Mall in Schaumburg because I heard they had a Farrell's ice cream parlor. And my sister had introduced me to those in Phoenix when she was going to school out in Arizona State. And when we got there, I ordered something on the menu called... The Epicurean's Delight. <laughs> it was more ice cream than even a teenager like me could safely digest. Uh, but I ordered it because I knew what an Epicurean was. I'd studied the scriptures. I searched the scriptures and found that. <laughs> and if the Stoics sound familiar, it's because the word Stoic is worked its way more into our vocabulary than even Epicurean. Stoic means to accept whatever lack of pleasure that life brings you without so much as batting an eye. Did you ever watch White Sox pitcher Dylan Cease pitch? He almost won the Cy Young Award last year if Verlander hadn't had such a good year. Dylan Cease is, I, I, I thought of him right away because as I watch him pitch, I remember he is positively stoic on the mound. He pitches without expression. You, you know, if you've got to be a good pitcher, to, to be a good pitcher, you can't let anything get to you. But you're, as you watch Dylan see, you can't tell by looking at that guy if he's up by 10 runs or down by 10 runs. When he's down by 10 runs and he's being denied the pleasure of winning, you can't tell it by his stoic expression. And the reason that Paul bumped into both of these kinds of philosophers there in the marketplace is because they are 
absolutely opposite philosophies. So Paul found them in the same place, button heads against each other. It's kind of like how the Corinthians and the Galatians were opposite, not philosophies, but opposites in the Bible. The Corinthians were guilty of pleasurable sins like fornication and drunkenness, the sins that Hebrews calls the pleasures of sin for a season, right? But the Galatians were guilty of legalism. And under legalism, you not only lose the pleasures of fornication and drunkenness and all the other pleasures of sin for a season, you lose the good kinds of pleasures. Paul wrote to him and said, where's the blessedness you used to have? He was talking about the pleasure of giving. When they saw his eye problems, they said, boy, we wish we could just pluck out our eyes and give them to you. They lost those kinds of pleasures as well. And listen, all the sins that Christians commit fall into one of those categories, Corinthian or Galatian. And I say that because here all the philosophies of the world fall into either Epicureanism or Stoicism. Let me prove it to you. Before you were saved, you were like the Ephesians, and you wallowed in either one or the other of those kinds of sins. Look what Paul told the Ephesians in Ephesians 2.3. We all, every one of us, when we were unsaved, we all had our conversation in times past, in the lusts of our flesh, watch now, fulfilling the desires of the flesh, like the Corinthians like to, and of the mind, like the Galatians were into, of the flesh, like the Epicureans, of the mind, like the Stoics. And we were by nature the children of wrath. The grace of God can save a sinner from both the lusts of the Epicurean flesh and the lusts of the Stoic mind. And then after you're saved, it can save you from Corinthianism and Galatianism. Amen? But now, when they call Paul a babbler, (laughs) that word means somebody who babbles. Who's buried in Grant's tomb? Yeah. Who babbles? Yeah. Uh, a babble, uh, to, to babble means to utter words imperfectly or indistinctly like a child who is learning to talk or like people you read about in Proverbs 23, 29 and 30. Who hath woe? Who hath sorrow? Who hath contentions? Who's always getting into arguments? Who hath babbling? Who hath wounds without a cause? Who hath redness of eyes? They that tarry long at the wine and get drunk because they tarried long at the wine. Well, let me ask you, do drunks babble? Do they have a hard time speaking distinctly? Do you know what those snobby Greeks used to call anybody who wasn't a Greek? Kind of sounds like Babel. Look at Romans 1.14. Paul says, I I owe the gospel both to the Greeks and to the barbarians. The Greeks, those snobby Greeks, called anybody who didn't speak Greek a barbarian, because when they would speak, it sounded to the Greeks like they were saying, ba-ba-ha. So think of that next time you hear the Beach Boys sing, ba-ba-ba-ba-ba-brain, right? Now listen. The Apostle Paul did not speak indistinctly. The Apostle Paul was a learned man. We know he spoke Greek fluently in the way we know that is he wrote 13 epistles in Greek. But because he wasn't Greek by ethnicity, those philosophers looked down their nose at him, called him a babbler. 
a babbler who seemed to be setting forth strange gods because he preached to them Jesus and the resurrection. They thought he was talking about two different gods. And the reason they thought that is because the Greeks had gods of abstract things like that. They had a god of peace, like we talked about. You know what her name was? Her name was Irene. That's what the name Irene means. They had a god of war. They had a god of peace. They had a god of harmony. They had a god of democracy. They had a god of justice. And so they thought Paul was preaching about a god named Jesus and a god of resurrection. But now that verse there, that tells you how Paul dealt with idolatry. He didn't take the time to study and learn the history of all of those idols so he would know how to talk to the idolaters who worshipped all those idols, did he? He just preached Christ crucified and risen from the dead. And I point that out because these days you'll hear Christians say, oh, you know, if you want to witness to a Muslim, you got to study Islam. Want a witness to a Mormon? You got to study Mormonism. And now you don't. In speaking of the heathen in Canaan, look, look what Paul, look what God told the Jews in Deuteronomy twelve thirty. He said, "Take heed to thyself that thou be not snared by following the heathen." So how are you going to accomplish that? Inquire not after their gods saying, how did these nations serve their gods? And the reason you don't want to do that, because even so will I do likewise. God knows if you study a false religion, it's likely you will fall for a false religion. I know you don't think you could, but that verse says you could. Who do you think is right? You or God? Plenty of Christians other than you have. Doesn't happen often, but it happens. That's why Paul said in your last reference in Romans 16, 19, I would have you wise unto that which is good and simple concerning evil and all those false religions are evil in God's eyes, folks. Listen, think it through. There were 30,000 gods There were way too many gods and false religions for Paul to research, and there still are today. So if you want to help people who are ensnared in other religions, just do what Paul did and preach Jesus, him crucified and risen from the dead. Well, after those philosophers encountered Paul, it says in verses 19 and 20, they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, May we know what this new doctrine whereof thou speakest is? For thou bringest certain strange things to our ears. We would know, therefore, what these things mean. Now, did you, I didn't remember hearing about the Areopagus in school, did you? But the Areopagus was named after the Greek god Ares, the Greek god of war, a god that the Romans renamed Mars. But the last part of the Areopagus, the suffix, we call it, the Pegus, the word Pegus means hill. So you put them together, you got Mars, hill. And that's why, we're not going to get this far, but look down at verse 22. When they got to the Areopagus, what does it say? Then Paul stood in the midst of Mars Hill. Though and Laurie had been there, right? Did you be there? there? No. Oh, you, that's, no, you went to, to Israel. Well, you can go to Mars Hill if you go with BBS next time they have their trip to, <laughs> to, to Greece. <laughs> yeah, that, but anyway... The Areopagus was where these philosophers would get together to talk philosophy. And Paul was bringing them a new philosophy. And we know they just couldn't wait to hear it because of what it says in the last verse of your text there. 
The reason they said, we want to we wanna hear what these things mean at the end of verse 20, because as Luke tells us in parentheses, all the Athenians and the strangers who were there passing through town or vacationing there or sojourning there just for this purpose, all the Athenians and strangers which were there spent their time in nothing else but either to tell or to hear some new thing. And in closing, I call this message a tale of three cities because those cities, they illustrate the extremes of mankind. The Thessalonians were too close-minded. Those Berean Jews refused to believe this new truth that Paul was preaching to them about their God, the grace of God. But the Athenians were too open-minded. They, they opened their minds to anything and everything. And in between those two cities in Scripture stands the city of Berea. They found it right. They did it right. They received the truth with an open mind and found it to be true because they searched the scriptures daily. And you too can avoid those two extremes of mankind. Don't be too close-minded to hear new truth. You haven't learned it all. You haven't arrived. I haven't either. But don't be so open-minded, but, but be closed-minded. Well, you know trying to say the right way to be is to search the scriptures daily and you'll always find the truth amen father we thank you for this passage of scripture and the heart of paul has opened up to us and we're able to get an inkling of the kinds of things that moved our apostle and we pray, Father, that we might be so saturated with your word after we search them that we feel like he does, did when he looked around. That's what we see. We, we see past the glitter and of things like the Parthenon. And we see the need of men. God, give us that kind of spirit, we pray in the Savior's name. 